This Jesus handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to join us here this morning. And we trust that you are here with us wherever we have come together in your name. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. On Easter Sunday, I preached what I called Just Another Sermon. After all, I suggested we celebrate Easter, the good news of the empty tomb, every single week. So shouldn't every sermon be an Easter sermon? And an Easter sermon, just a regular sermon. And today, in Acts chapter 2, we have the first recorded example of a sermon preached in light of Easter morning. In light of the empty tomb. And guess what? By today's standards, after millions and millions of sermons preached in light of Easter morning, when you read Peter's sermon here in Acts 2, it feels just like a regular sermon. Peter's first sermon, then, has become the model for all good sermons preached on any given Sunday for the next few thousand years. Good preachers broke the mold after this one. And we're going to go through this sermon sort of step by step this morning. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. This is how Peter begins. Listen up. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you. So Peter kicks off his sermon by proclaiming the holiness of God. Now he doesn't preach the law in the way that we're used to understanding that word, and that he doesn't communicate a commandment, a particular commandment of God to the people, but he is preaching the law in the sense that the law is a reflection of God's holiness. We are called to be holy because God is holy. And as you'll see, the result of hearing about God's holiness, whether by commandment or by attribute, is the same. And Peter begins his sermon by announcing who God is. He's the one, says Peter, who showed you who Jesus was, his glorious, chosen, one and only son, by deeds of power, with wonders and signs. He is miraculous, says Peter. He is mighty. He is worthy to be praised. Peter begins with the glory of God. Peter's sermon here, this first sermon of the resurrection era, tells the whole story of Christianity in just a few sentences. My friend Zach Hicks, a pastor and musician whose songs are some of our favorites here at Grace Anglican, for instance, he wrote the bridge and new music to his Be the Victor's Name, the hymn that we're going to hear as the offertory in a few minutes. Zach, in a book about worship, described a three-stage form for this story of Christianity. First, the glory of God. Second, the gravity of sin. And third, the grandeur of grace. 
you uh, exploration class attendees will have heard me talk about this and how Thomas Cranmer, our reformer in England, formed our weekly worship service to follow this same pattern so that it and we every week would echo the story of Christianity again and again. Here's how it goes. A glorious God creates the world. He is worthy of honor, praise, and obedience. But instead, we sinned. Rather than giving God the glory he deserved, we tried to grasp glory and power for ourselves. But then, into our sinful state, God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to graciously rescue us from sin and death, raising us to new life in him. The glory of God, the gravity of sin, and the grandeur of grace. This is how it works for us every day, too. We acknowledge God's glory, which in turn reminds us of and sheds light on the gravity of our sin. And then the gravity of our sin compels us to call out once again for the saving grace of Jesus Christ, day by day, hour by hour. The glory of God, the gravity of sin, the grandeur of grace. And that is the sermon that Peter is preaching to the gathered crowd just after Jesus ascends to heaven after the resurrection. First, the glory of God. Jesus of Nazareth, he says, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you. But then the gravity of sin. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. This is the accusation. You had the opportunity, Peter admonishes, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, to embrace the holiness of God, to embrace the law of God. Jesus, the perfect man, fully embodying total obedience, but you rejected him. You killed him. Jesus, John writes in the first chapter of his gospel was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him this is grave sin and there is no depth of sin deeper than that of good friday these twin moments first when pilate asks the crowd shall i crucify your king And they respond rabidly, crucify him, crucify him. And then mere hours later, when Jesus feels the desolation and abandonment that we deserve, his holy and glorious father turning his back on the son who has for a time become the sin of the world and who cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Our sin never weighs as heavily on us as it does when the innocent son of God is put to a death that we deserve. In fact, 
It is the glory of God that shows us the gravity of our sin. It is God's holiness that reveals, by comparison, our unholiness. I call this the Hugh Hefner principle. The octogenarian Hefner surrounding himself with beautiful young women only served to reveal and highlight how old and creepy Hugh Hefner was. God's holiness works in the same way. It is that bright spotlight shining into all the dark corners of our unrepentant hearts, revealing the sin that lives there. God's holiness reveals our sin. And we acknowledge this. This is how we begin every service every week, isn't it? In the Collect for Purity, we acknowledge that to an almighty and glorious God, all hearts are open, all desires known. From him, no secrets are hid. And our immediate response is to beg him to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. We know that if he is glorious enough to see the truth about us, he will also see the gravity of our sin. The same thing is true with the summary of the law immediately following. We say here what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And our immediate response, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. So that's the second stage of Peter's sermon and the result of an acknowledgement of the glory of God. I mean, can you imagine? I remember once as a Christian summer camp counselor, a group of fellow college kids and I had responsibility for a big church lock-in that got a little bit out of hand. Among lots of other things that happened that night, I may or may not have participated in giving a particularly annoying elementary school kid a swirly. Now, for the uninitiated, that involves holding a kid up by his ankles, tipping his hair into the toilet, and then flushing it. Uh, At the staff meeting the next morning, the camp director came into the meeting. She, of course, had not been at the lock-in, foolishly trusting us college kids Uh, to be responsible, she came into the meeting and said, so I heard some things went on last night. Why don't you tell me what happened? And then just looked at us. Do you see the brilliance? She knew stuff happened, but we didn't know exactly what she knew. And my heart just dropped. I can still remember her face staring at me. She was just waiting, and we knew that we were busted. And of course, as it turned out, she knew everything. This Jesus, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. The people gathered there that day knew They were busted. Peter just drops the hammer on them. This Jesus who you killed, 
and crucified. They'd killed the Son of God, handed him over to sinners, jeered him, mocked him, assumed finally that he was dead and gone. And the people, Luke writes in Acts, were cut to the heart. They knew they were busted. But thank God, the Christian story does not end with a glorious God and the gravity of human sin. And Peter's sermon doesn't end there either. This Jesus handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And Peter's not even done there. He doesn't just have good news for Jesus, that death could not hold him. He has good news, capital G, capital N, for the very sinners in the crowd before him. The very people who had handed Jesus over. The very people who had jeered and mocked him. The very people who had assumed he would stay dead. Repent, Peter offers them. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. This is the grandeur of God's grace. Salvation for the sinner. Earlier, I mentioned twin moments as the deepest depths of our sin. First, when the crowd shouted, crucify him. And second, when God the Father turns his back on Jesus. But that angry crowd screaming for Jesus' execution has an opposite moment too. Not a twin, but the other side of the coin. Pilate asks the crowd, shall I crucify your king? And they respond rapidly, crucify him, crucify him. And then mere hours later, when Jesus feels that the desolation and abandonment that we deserve, his holy and glorious father turning his back on the son, who has for a time become the sin of the world, we have another moment, a moment in which the sinless son looked out over the people and said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. Them. Jesus offers forgiveness to the people nailing him to the cross. And those people, hearing now from Peter about the existence of such good news, such forgiveness, such mercy and grace, leap at the chance. Luke writes, So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. Let us be people who welcome this message. God is glorious. He is the creator of the world, the author of life, He is holy and good, worthy of praise and obedience. But his glory and holiness reveal how short of his standard we fall. 
We have not loved as God is love. We are not faithful as God is faithful. Our sin is grave. We are cut to the heart. But there is good news, even for you and for me. You can repent and be saved. God's grace is surpassing in its grandeur. It reaches down into the depths and pulls you up into new life. Jesus' love is given to you. Jesus' faithfulness is given to you. Jesus' goodness and righteousness is given to you. God shows his incalculable holiness in that on Jesus' account and by God's grace through faith, you and I, the gravest of sinners, are saved. Amen.